Broadcasting, pre-recorded from Hell's Oven. This is 20 Minutes with Big Mike on the Mic. Join me as I discuss issues international, national, local, and pretty much whatever has recently caught my attention. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is Big Mike. So what are we going to talk about today? Uh, kind of a cornucopia of this episode. A few things that have caught my attention simply we were last together. And a couple of current events I'm intentionally not discussing that's right, this is going to be a Zimmerman-free zone. I know it's been a couple of weeks since the verdict, but people are still up and up about it. So this episode, we're going to hit the Middle East. In particular, we're going to discuss Egypt and Syria. So what's been going on over there? Who's involved? What has the involvement of the U.S. government been, and should we be involved? In history, we're going to look at the Barbary Wars, and we're also going to have some wiener talk and discuss my recent experience with Zumba. At this point, you're probably freaking out. Oh, no, he's going to talk about wieners and probably not the Oscar Mayer kind. You're only semi-correct. We are talking about disgraced former congressman and New York Senator, New York City Mayor wannabe Anthony Weiner. The guy did it to himself. Obviously, he should not be allowed any texting-enabled devices or cameras of any kind. Everyone else has been analyzing the situation. Should his wife leave him? Should he continue to run for mayor? Yada, yada, yada. I obviously think he doesn't have the character necessary to hold any representative office. But let's forget all that for a moment and have fun with potential headlines. Here are a couple I've seen already. Dirty Wiener pins apology for pervy obsession. Erection update pressure mounts on Wiener to pull out. Situation getting harder for, harder for Wiener. And here's one from the mind of yours truly, the rise and fall of Wiener. What if he actually did win the election? I, of course, believe the people of New York City get what they deserve at that point, but the headline possibilities are endless. Wiener slides in the lead. Wiener Mobile, Wiener Mobile gets stuck, runs out of weenie whistles. Welcome to Wienerville. And before I forget, I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening, for those turning in for the first time. Thanks as well. So I learned last week that I'm definitely not in any shape to share pictures of myself with anyone, private or public. I had the urging of some co-workers, I tried out a Zumba class at the Y. It wasn't that I didn't have a good time, it was a lot of fun. It was that it almost killed me after only 10 minutes. I also saw myself in those gigantic floor-to-ceiling mirrors. Scary. I think I'm going to stick with my C to 5K and maybe sprinkle in a little Zumba now and then. But only after I'm in better shape. Of course, I'd take some Lindy 3 to 5 minutes at a time so that could take care of any dancing fix. So what's happening in the Middle East? This has been a troubled and chaotic area of the world for quite a long time. It is completely on fire at the moment, and I'm just going to focus on a couple sections of it, but I believe they're quite significant. In February 2011, the people of Egypt were rallying in the street for the end of a dictator's rule. Hosni Mubarak, who had been at least friendly to the U.S., but of course ruled with an iron fist, was forced to step down. There was a lot of concern at that time in regard to who would rise to fill the void of leadership, that Egypt was suddenly thrust into, a concern of many in the U.S. and others throughout the world that have followed the history of the Middle East, in particular Egypt, were worried about the Muslim Brotherhood and that they'd push their way in, form an Islamic theocracy similar to Iran's. Of course, the Muslim Brotherhood said they had no interest in being involved with politics. U.S. intelligence officials told Congress that the Muslim Brotherhood was a mostly, quote, secular organization. Newsflash to the, quote, intelligence community. The word Muslim is in the title of the group's name. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. The ancient Jewish writings, Talmud Bava Basra 3a teach, 
people should not tear down a synagogue until another synagogue is built. The text is discussing a community in the process of replacing its old temple with a newer and better one. It's saying that being optimistic and almost certain the new structure will be completed is insufficient. Unforeseen difficulties can arise over the course of almost any project. Uh, The new temple might not be ready when planned. In fact, it might never be completed at all. Accordingly, before dismantling the old temple, the community should first be certain that the replacement is already built and usable. The uprising was led mostly by young people who envisioned a democratic utopia where people would be treated equally and they could lead Egypt into a brave new world. The problem is they didn't have a transition plan. They had no structure on how to move forward once they pushed Mubarak out of office. And there were, of course, groups in the wings waiting to hijack the movement. So they had elections, and the new Peace and Justice Party, a.k.a. the Muslim Brotherhood, wins a majority of parliamentary seats, and their candidate Mohamed Morsi was declared the winner. So what did Morsi do? He suspended the Egyptian constitution and drafted a new one based on Sharia law. He began changing Egyptian law and turning himself into a modern-day pharaoh, a supreme dictator for life. Morsi simply replaced a secular autocratic rule with an Islamist one. What has been the situation for the Egyptian people since this? As Bill Crystal puts it, quote, Glorious Jeffersonian Revolution? Minority groups have basically been oppressed and in some cases slaughtered. Let's look at just two of these groups, Coptic Christians and women. Persecution of Egypt's Christian minority worsened under Morsi and his Muslim Brotherhood leadership. Mideast expert Raymond Ibrahim summed it up pretty well. The persecution of cops was practically legalized, as unprecedented numbers of Christians were arrested often receiving more than double the maximum prison sentence under the accusation that they, quote, blasphemed Islam and or its prophet. It was also under Morsi's reign that another unprecedented scandal occurred. The St. Mark Cathedral, holiest site of Coptic Christianity and headquarters to the Pope Tawadros himself, was besieged in broad daylight by Islamic rioters. When security came, they too joined in the attack on the cathedral and the targeting of Christian children for abduction, ransom, rape, and or forced conversion has also reached unprecedented levels under Morsi. Indeed, the situation for Coptic women and girls has been been the worst. Here's how it generally plays out. A family's daughter goes missing for a few days. The family goes to the police department. They are told she is no longer your concern and she is a Muslim now. This is what these men do to, quote, convert these girls and women to Islam and therefore save them. They are given to a Muslim man and raped repeatedly and told they are now Muslim and married to this man. The situation in general under Morsi's control has been atrocious. During the most recent uprising, some groups set up female-only protest zones to protect them from rape and harassment. The UN reported last month that more than 99% of Egyptian girls and women were subject to harassment, ranging from sexual innuendo to uninvited touching to rape. The report stated, quote, 99.3% replied that they have been subject to one form or another of harassment, calling the levels of sexual harassment unprecedented. Last year, British journalist Natasha Smith described the brutal, brutal sexual assault she experienced in Tahrir Square after the Muslim Brotherhood's election victory, including being stripped naked, pulled at the limbs, and violated. During the 2011 revolution, CBS News correspondent Laura Logan was attacked while reporting from Tahrir Square and described in a 60 Minutes interview how her assailants, quote, raped me with their hands. What 60 Minutes failed to include when they aired the interview was her assailants kept calling her Jew, Jew. So for months, the recent protesters have demanded that Morsi form a national unity government. But instead of working with the people who solidified his power and appointed Muslim Brotherhood leadership, he appointed Muslim Brotherhood leadership. They had no clue how to run anything in government. 
Last month, Morrissey decided on the new governor of the ancient city of Luxor. Yep, it's more than just a cool-looking hotel casino in Vegas. He selected Adel Mohammed Al-Kayat, a man with ties to the Islamic group that massacred around 60 tourists in that same tourist destination in 1997. It solidified Morrissey's power with Islamists, but I doubt it was a good idea for tourism dollars. As we've seen in the last few weeks, the Egyptian people are tired of going from one dictator to a worse one. The Muslim Brotherhood knew there was trouble coming. A few weeks ahead of the protest, they fortified their headquarters building in anticipation of the protest. During these protests, some groups firebombed the Muslim Brotherhood headquarters building and ransacked it. The political protests that ensued were recognized as the, quote, largest political protest in world history. It definitely speaks to a desire of the people for change. As mentioned before, you don't get involved in changing something huge until you have a replacement built. What has the administration's involvement been in Egypt? Obama and his administration supported the people rising up against Mubarak and has provided moral, financial, and military support to Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood. However, now that the people are rising up against another dictator, he's still supporting Morsi. It seems to me a bit hypocritical to support the people in the overthrow of a dictator, and then when the guy who supposedly won elections turns into a worse dictator, you don't support them. Maybe there's a new foreign policy boondoggle looming for the administration, particularly the State Department. According to documents discovered after the recent June 30th revolution, Morsi actually lost the election by more than 200,000 votes, but the American ambassador in Cairo, Ann Patterson, who was carrying out the wishes of her botches in Washington, pressured the military council to declare Morsi the winner. The reason? To avoid bloodshed. So what direction is Egypt going in? It's anybody's guess at this point. How about we look at the French Revolution for a bit of historical perspective? It was sparked by a fiscal crisis and demands for individual liberties that ultimately overthrew the absolute monarchy that had ruled France for centuries. That revolution involved about a decade of turmoil and killed tens of thousands before Napoleon Bonaparte assumed power in 1799. So this is where Egypt may have an advantage to learn or to lean to a more American-style revolutionary solution if they can bridge their religious and sectarian divisions. The French Revolution was missing a very important component, God. Egypt is full of God-fearing people. If they can exercise the patience to allow a democratic republic to take hold with religious freedom, yet allowing said religions to help the people remain moral, they just might salvage the situation. So how does Egypt relate to Syria other than geography? The Egyptian-inspired revolution is now being led by al-Qaeda insurgents. Al-Qaeda is a child of the Muslim Brotherhood. All of the big al-Qaeda leaders came from and were inspired by the Muslim Brotherhood and its teachings. Here's how it starts in Syria. The people see that the Egyptians have overthrown a dictatorial regime. They think, hey, our king and his regime is dictatorial. Let's do what the Egyptians did. The difference is that Assad responded much differently than Mubarak. Assad is fighting to retain his power and is suppressing his people with a huge military fist. He is also backed by both the Iranians and the Russians. Civilian deaths are in the hundreds of thousands, and there are now over a million refugees fleeing into southern Turkey. According to these refugees, the insurgent rebels are more brutal and oppressive than the Assad regime. The insurgent groups that initially started to fight in a bid to overthrow the government were more secular and democratic-minded. They definitely were not Islamist. However, Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood are not ones to let a good crisis go to waste. Foreign fighters started pouring into Syria. The original insurgency is by far more populous than the Al-Qaeda-backed groups. However, it is not about numbers but belief and motivation. Even with the small percentage, the Al-Qaeda insurgents have managed to take control of the separatist movement in Syria. What have we learned about these Al-Qaeda-backed rebels? They are absolutely vicious. For a couple months, there is a video that's been circulating on the internet. One of the rebel leaders is shown mutilating the body of a recently killed Syrian soldier. He cuts the soldier's chest open, pulls out his heart, and proceeds to eat it. 
Just a couple weeks ago, Syrian Catholic priest Francois Murad was beheaded by jihadi fighters. Murad was setting up a monastery in Ghazania, northern Syria. On a Sunday, the Christian Sabbath, Islamic militants breached the monastery and grabbed him. Father Murad was beheaded methodically along with three other men. Video shows that they were beheaded one at a time by men holding what appears to be a simple kitchen knife. Dozens of men and boys are seen cheering on as the three men are beheaded. A frenzy ensued with dozens drawing out their smartphones to capture the bloody scene as a chorus of Allahu Akbar is sung. So why is the president supporting such a vicious insurgence? In particular, why is he sending arms to Al-Qaeda Al militants? Haven't they sworn to kill the Western way of life, in particular the United States? It comes back to why he supported Morsi in Egypt. He is supporting the Muslim Brotherhood and their causes. Of course, if you say that you have groups like the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, calling you an Islamophobe, a phrase they created, by the way, this is a group that was listed as a, quote, unindicted co-conspirator in the Holy Land Foundation trial and reported to be a Muslim Brotherhood front group. This was the largest terrorism financing case in U.S. history. Please, go look that one up for yourself. An interesting side note is a leader of this coalition of Al-Qaeda rebel groups. He is a Syrian who spent several years living in the United States. He and his wife lived in Dallas, Texas, where she was a school teacher, and he, is a prominent f he was a prominent figure in the local chapter of CARE. In December, he decided to up and move the family to Syria, and lo and behold, he is the leader of the Islamic resistance. So what has the U.S. involvement been? At first, the administration just said they support the people in their effort to overthrow an oppressive dictatorial regime, and the U.S. would not get involved unless Assad used chemical weapons. Unbeknownst to most Americans is that we were already running guns to these rebels through Libya, but that is a story for another episode. The administration a couple months ago claimed they, they had proof Assad used chemical weapons and it killed a very small number of people. I find that hard to believe as chemical weapons by their nature kill hundreds of thousands of people. This, however, gave them the pretense to openly send weapons to Al-Qaeda. For the most part, though, the administration and the media have been ignoring it. So what has the administration been doing? Secretary of State John Kerry, ketchup boy himself, has been shuttling back and forth between the Israelis and Palestinians trying to get peace talks going again. Jonathan Tobin, senior online editor of Commentary Magazine, writes that Americans should be concerned Kerry is so focused reviving the Israel-Palestinian peacemaking track rather than the more burning crisis in the Middle East, such as Egypt and Syria. He writes, quote, Though President Obama came into office convinced that he would raise America's prestige abroad, the sheer volume of foreign policy disasters going on at the same time, while the Secretary of State is immersed in a fool's errand, makes it appear that it has never been lower. That the Secretary of State would behave in such a manner at a moment in history when other regional crises require immediate attention graphically illustrates not only his incompetence, but also that of the President. What is my final take on all this? The President and the Administration are intentionally ignoring the burning foreign policy issues in the Middle East. At the same time, they are completely on the wrong side of the issues in both Egypt and Syria. We should not be involved in either. We definitely should not be sending arms to those that wish to do us harm. So now that your eyes are sufficiently bleeding out of your head, let's take a look at history, shall we? How long has the U.S. been involved in the Middle East? It goes back to very shortly after our nation's founding. How many of you know the Marine Corps hymn? It starts out from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Why is it significant and where does it come from? America's first foreign war was against the Barbary states, or more appropriately, the Barbary pirates. Barbary Corsairs and crews came from the North American Ottoman provinces of Algiers, Tunis, Tripoli, and the independent Sultanate of Morocco. The Barbary states captured American trade ships in the Mediterranean in an effort to extort ransom for the safe passage of sailors and goods. 
At the time, the U.S. did not have a navy. For 15 years, the United States paid a ransom of $1 million per year. At the time, it was about 10% of the U.S. budget. In March 1785, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams went to London to negotiate with Tripoli's envoy, Ambassador Sidi Haji Adrahman. When they inquired concerning the ground of the pretensions to make war upon nations who had done them no injury, the ambassador replied, It was written in their Koran that all nations which had not acknowledged the prophet were sinners, whom it as the right and duty of the faithful to plunder and enslave, and that every Muslim who was slain in this warfare was sure to go to paradise. He said also that the man who was the first to board a vessel had on slave over and above his share, and that when they sprang to the deck of an enemy ship, every sailor held a dagger in each hand and a third in his mouth, which usually struck terror into the foe that they cried out for quarter at once. In the last year of Washington's presidency, he urged Congress to find the revenues to undertake the construction of a U.S. Navy to defend American interests on the high seas. When John Adams became president, he vigorously pursued those plans, earning the title Father of the Navy. Yet Adams was reticent to resort to a military solution, not because he opposed the use of force, but rather because he didn't think the people would fully support that option. Furthermore, he believed that even though the extortion payments were high, the increased revenue produced by American commerce in that region would more than cover the cost. Nevertheless, he longed for the change in international attitude that would result if America used military forces to defend our citizens and our rights. Because America had adopted a policy of appeasement in response to the terrorist depredations, the Barbary powers viewed America as weak. In fact, William Eaton, whom Adams had dispatched as American diplomat to Tunis, one of the four terrorist powers, reported to Secretary of State Timothy Pickering that, quote, an opinion long since conceived and never fairly controverted among the Tunisians is that the Americans are a feeble sect of Christians. Truly, with no fear of consequence, Muslims found American targets especially inviting, fueling even further attacks. Adams truly understood the difference that a naval force would make, explaining, it would be a good occasion to begin a navy. The policy of Christendom, i.e. of the Christian nations not fighting back for their rights, has made cowards of all there, the Christian nation sailors, before the standard of Muhammad. It would be heroical, it would be heroical and glorious in us to restore courage to ours. I doubt not we could accomplish it if we should set about it in earnest. By the end of Adams' administration, extortion payments to the Muslim terrorists accounted for 20% of the federal budget. When Thomas Jefferson became president in 1801, having personally dealt with the Muslim Barbary powers for almost two decades, he had already concluded that there were only three solutions to the terrorist problem. One, pay the extortion money. Two, keep all American ships out of international waters, which would destroy American commerce. Or three, use military force to put an end to the attacks. Jefferson discarded the first two options, rejecting the second as a matter of bad policy, and the first because I was very unwilling that we should acquiesce in the humiliation of paying a tribute to those lawless pirates. He supported the third option, acknowledging, I very early thought it would, best, it would be best to effect a peace through the medium of war. Jefferson offered several reasons he believed this would be the best policy, including justices in favor of this opinion, honor favors it, it will procure us respect in Europe, and respect as a safeguard to interest, and I think at least expensive and equally effectual. Jefferson formed this position long before his presidency, so once inaugurated, he began refusing payments to the offending nations. In response, Tripoli declared war against the United States, and Algiers threatened to do so, this constituting America's first official war as an established independent nation. Jefferson, determined to end the two decades-old terrorist attacks, selected General William Eaton, Adams Consul to Tunis, and elevated him to the post of U.S. Naval Agent to the Barbary States with the assignment to lead an American military expedition against the four terrorist nations. 
using the new American Navy built under Adams, Eaton transported the U.S. Marines overseas, and when the offending nations found themselves confronted by imminent American military action, all but Tripoli backed down. General, General Eaton therefore led a successful military campaign against Tripoli that freed captured seamen and crushed the terrorist forces. After four years of fighting, in 1805, Tripoli signed a treaty on America's terms, thus ending their terrorist aggressions. It is from the Marine Corps' role in that first conflict with Muslim terrorists from 1801 to 1805 that the opening line of the Marine hymn is derived, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. So why did Jefferson own a Koran? A simple answer is to learn the beliefs of the enemies he was fighting. Recall that Jefferson had been personally exposed to Islamic police when attempting to secure peace between America and Muslim terrorists. Having been told by the Muslim ambassador that the Koran promised paradise as a reward for enslaving, killing, and war, Jefferson inquired into the irrational beliefs that motivated the Muslim groups and individuals warring against America. And as a matter of fact, Jefferson didn't just own a Koran. He was the one to first print it in English, so that way the American people could understand uh, the people that they were at war with. Uh, thanks again for joining me for another quick 20 minutes or so. I hope that you were mightily entertained while learning something at the same time. Remember to do your own research, stay informed, and never be afraid to speak out.